the aisle because I, I normally sit up here, but today I was running sound for worship and preaching. So we're we doing the multitask thing today and, uh, and having a great time as a family. It was a really great time in Billings. I was telling, telling uh, the, the prayer group this morning that we, I've been to a number of different Foursquare conventions and, and national gatherings and that kind of thing over the years. Um, but this one uh, was, was something special. It, we, we were missing all the glitz and glamour and uh, high production and intro videos for every speaker. And, and uh, uh, there were still lights and smoke, so that was fun. Um, uh, but what happened was uh, because of COVID last year and this year, they canceled the, the national uh, connection, they call it. This year was supposed to be in San Antonio, and so they canceled that. But then uh, President Randy Remington said, we've got to do something. We've got to get our leaders together. And so they threw this together, and the church in Billings, Faith Chapel, just said, hey, you know, you can come here, and uh, we'll, we'll host you guys. And they, and they did, and they did a beautiful job hosting um, and didn't hardly cost Foursquare anything, and it just, it just happened. It was really organic. Um, lots of free um, free time in worship and soaking in the Lord's presence, and Randy did a great job pastoring us all into the Lord's presence. Um, I felt I've loved previous gatherings, but this one was was something else. So uh, we came back very encouraged with that. We are continuing in Mark, right? Um, last week. I actually backtracked a little bit, went back to the beginning of chapter 9, and we talked about um, right after the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus and Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain, they're faced with uh, the boy who's possessed by a demon and his father talking to Jesus, and his, his famous line was, I believe, help my unbelief. And we talked about faith being not so much that thing that you work up on the inside, but rather the space that you create for the Lord to work. Seth was actually talking about that today in, in, um, in the song, Make Room. We make room for the Lord to be there because we trust him, because we believe he is who he says he is. We allow him in and he does incredible things. Uh, that, was, that message was called, All Things Are Possible. And uh, at, at the risk of sounding self-serving, I recommend you go listen to that one. That felt really strange to say. Uh, <laughs> um, I do want to welcome, uh, if you're joining us online or watching afterwards, welcome. And uh, you can also get your Bible ready. Here we go. We're going to Mark chapter 10. Here we go. Oh, boy. This is one I've been approaching with a little bit of trepidation. Um, here we go. Jesus, bless the word. Holy Spirit, be at work uh, in this moment. Lord, your word is alive and active and always encouraging, correcting, and teaching us. And that's what we need today. We need your word to come alive to us and to do those things in our heart. Uh, show us truth from fiction. Bring light and revelation where we need it. And uh, let your word minister to us today. Amen. Of all the social ills that plague our society, 
none is more pervasive than divorce. It's an ugly and damaging thing that touches most of our lives. Last year, stats say that about 39% of marriages ended in this way. By the stats, in this room, we have people that have been divorced, some remarried, some single, people whose parents were divorced, other family members or close friends who have walked through this. Nearly everyone has been touched by the trauma that is divorce. Divorce is the cause of much pain, bitterness, grief, unforgiveness, financial struggles, health issues, guilt, anxiety and stress, depression, insomnia, substance abuse, and even identity crisis. And that's just the people actually divorcing. There's a whole peripheral world around that. The effects of divorce on children are far-reaching and devastating. Research shows that children with divorced parents have greater chance of poor academic performance, loss of interest in social activity, difficulty adapting to change. They're more emotionally sensitive. Their anger and irritability comes out easier. Feelings of guilt, introduction of destructive behaviors and addictive things, increase in health problems, and the loss of faith in marriage and the family unit. That's, that's our kids that, that deal with that. Because the human mind and soul are so complex, the scripture says that, that we, um, you know, the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? There's, there's a depth and a complexity to us that you don't, you don't know what's going on. That's why there's such a big industry in, uh, in psychology and counseling. And uh, Most people don't know the, the full effects of these until much later if they're lucky, and that's with professional help. <laughs> Sounds like a great thing, right, divorce? I mean, if it's so terrible, why is it so prevalent? Why does it keep happening? If it's so destructive, why do we never learn and why do we keep doing the same things over and over? I guess self-destructive behavior has always been a part of our existence. It's part of our fallen human nature. And we all have various kinds of vices that harm us, and we hold on to them tight anyways. As we go through this passage in Mark today and a few other related scriptures, I want to make sure that you know this is a heavy one right off the bat. I, I understand that. I didn't start with a joke. I thought about it. Um, I want to make sure that you know that there's absolutely no judgment coming from, from here, no judgment coming from Jesus in this passage. Um, this is, we're just going to look at what God's heart is on this subject. As always, he will bring our attention to his heart and the way he thinks and the way he does things. When we get stuck in our way of thinking, his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. And that's what we want to see today. We want to see how he looks at this. So humbly, we'll dig into what Jesus says about divorce. In Mark chapter 10, verse 1, here we go. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. 
some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered to them, what did Moses command you? Read into that, you're Jews. Come on, you know, you know the deal. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Good stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, let's get into this. The context. All right, what's going on around this? And, and what do we need to know about this passage? Uh, the first thing is that divorce was already a common part of society. It was not, it was not a novel thing. It was not um, a new thing. It had been going on since before Moses. Um, and so they were, the Pharisees were coming at this kind of like they did with all things. They were trying to draw Jesus into a debate on details, trying to bring him down to, to a different level. The Pharisees had two schools of thought on divorce, two major schools of thought. Um, and the law that they're referencing here is found in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Um, verse 1 and a couple, other, um, a couple other verses that we'll read in a minute in their totality. Um, but the thing they're referencing is, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. We'll read that whole thing in a little bit. But what they wanted to know was, what does some indecency mean? If he is unpleased with his wife, he, he can just divorce her, right? So what, what does that mean? What, what does it require to justify a divorce? So one school of thought uh, was from a rabbi previous uh, to Jesus named Shammai, and some indecency to Shammai was plainly adultery or unfaithfulness, unchastity. Very clear cut. If it wasn't that, then you didn't have a right to divorce. There was a more modern one here that they were dealing with uh, by a rabbi named Hillel. And he took, he took the emphasis to she finds no favor in his eyes. And it was a, br a much broader meeting. Um, so she might overcook the dinner. Or talk too loudly at home so that a neighbor hears uh, when they're having a disagreement. And if he was displeased with her for any reason, Hillel says that was good enough for divorce. So the Pharisees have these two schools of thought. They're going back and forth. And so they, they want to bring Jesus into that. It says they're testing him. Other translations say they were tempting him, trying to draw him into the argument. Um, there was another view that, um, that was prevalent in this day and age, and that was that held by the Essenes. The Essenes were a 
really, I guess if you had to compare them to something today, they were a fundamentalist group. Um, they hold up in caves out in the desert in the Judean wilderness. Um, uh, Qumran was the, the place where they were. You've heard of the, Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were found at Qumran up in the caves just last century. Um, they said that there was no divorce permitted period. And if your spouse died, you were to marry somebody from your family. Now, uh, yeah. Uh, in other words, you weren't supposed to go just find somebody, you know, find somebody new, new adventure, new life, that kind of thing. It was, you were supposed to stay uh, stay local, right? That, and that came from a passage where um, God was giving commandments for the kings of Israel and said, you know, you're not to collect wives and concubines. You're not to, to do that. Um, and, and if your wife dies, you're to take another wife from your family. That was directly for the kings. But the Essenes said, no, that's pretty good practice. We're going to make that the standard for everybody. So there was no divorce permitted in that, in that school of thought. Um, this was probably what, uh, how John the Baptist thought. He was heavily influenced by the Essenes. And so now we come to the, the last thing that's really happening in this setting, and that's Herod and his wife Herodias. She was, formerly, his brother's wife. And he was previously married, and they both divorced their spouses so that they could marry each other. Josephus says that, that she divorced Philip, the Tetrarch, uh, who was Herod's brother, to, to marry Herod. And Herod had divorced his wife so that they could be with each other. So this is like a current event. This is something and probably what gave the Pharisees the idea to say, oh, let's get him on this one. Because surely he can say something that will make somebody angry and he'll make enemies. So, yeah, that was exciting. That one kind of sounds like a Jeff Foxworthy song. Um, you might be a redneck if. <laughs> I mean, too much more of this and you're starting to, you know, test the kid's DNA for who they belong to and uh, you end up on those daytime shows where they reveal your DNA results. Um, exactly. That's the only reason I know about those is they have it on the TVs at the gym at the right time of day. <laughs> Some scary stuff on those shows. <laughs> So that, that was, you know, that was where they were at. It could get convoluted very quickly. Every aspect of that marriage was wrong according to Jewish law. And that's why John the Baptist eventually got killed for this. Is he, he was like, you guys are out of line. This is against the, the Torah and, on several counts. And, and I'm coming after you. And I'm not just going to um, let that slide. So he got arrested later on, beheaded. Um, didn't go over well? No, no, that was, but he, he was not wrong. <laughs> Let's define some terms in this. First, marriage. Uh, marriage, you could, you could talk about marriage for a long time and many messages, and so I'm not going to get into it uh, per se, but let's define it simply as the first human relationship that God instituted in the Garden of Eden. It was designed uh, first to multiply and fill the earth to subdue and care for the world that was given to humans to care for. It was an illustration of the unity of the Godhead and to display more of who God is in our world. 
Um, it's described as a covenant. Paul says marriage is an illustration of Jesus and the church and how he, he loves the church and gave himself up for the church. That's an illustration um, for how marriage ought to be. All right, let's define divorce. Literally, it means to separate and send away, to send away. And you can see that in the, in the passage in, in Deuteronomy. We'll read here in a moment where he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away. To dismiss from the house, to repudiate or reject with disapproval and condemnation. It was the formal end of a marriage covenant. So the, the disciples, or sorry, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they want to draw him into this debate, this conversation. And they say, uh, in Matthew, it says, uh, Matthew's account of this, um, you know, what, what does it take? What justifies a divorce is the real question. Do you, do you side with Shammai? Do you side with Hillel? The Essenes? Because we know your cousin. Like, they're, they're just kind of push some buttons here. We don't see any of that politically today, do we? Um, and Jesus, he didn't, even, he didn't even bite. He just says, well, what does Moses command you? And they refer to Deuteronomy 24, 1 uh, through 4. I'm going to read that real quick. Well, not too quick because it's several words. Uh, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if later the, the latter husband turns against her also and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if that latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away first, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For... That is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, that sounds like that TV show again. Um, so what's going on? What's crazy about this passage is this is not Moses saying, okay, you can get divorced. Like, and that's what they were using it for, is, is Moses saying, you know, he, he commanded that, that we could do this. And Jesus, uh, we'll see in a second here, um, He's not, he's not biting on that. What this passage is, is divorce was already something culturally happening. It was already something going on in Moses' day, but it was dangerous. And it was, it was especially dangerous for women um, because they could be dismissed summarily and then just kind of caught in this limbo, not permitted to remarry, not permitted to, to find security anywhere. And so what Moses said was, you give her a certificate of divorce, which declares that she's able to remarry and then get into all the, all the, uh, the uh, redneck stuff, right? So you know, no, no, no wife swapping. You can't like change your mind and, you know, oh, she was somebody else's wife. Now she's my wife. And, and no, 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 no. We're just going to keep this simple, keep it clean and, uh, and quit messing with people. So that's what that passage was about. It wasn't, that wasn't Moses saying, and this is, this is how divorce goes and, and what you should do. This was for the woman's sake, for the wife's sake. Jesus says, as they say, well, Moses, Moses said we could do this. Um, Jesus says, well, that was because your hearts were hard or your hearts are hard. 
He goes directly after the human condition of the heart and why they would be in that place in the first place. Why would we be divorcing in the first place? We have hard hearts. We're, we're humans. We got, we got issues. We're broken. We have uh, problems that we can't resolve. We have uh, emotional blockages that we can't, we can't figure out. And, and our relationships are broken and they fail. And we're not willing to submit it to the Lord. And so it just keeps breaking. So Jesus says it was because the human condition, because of your heart, that Moses instituted this to help mitigate some of the damage that comes from that. Moses did not command divorce like they said he did, but rather regulated an existing practice. But Jesus says next, but from the beginning, and he quotes Genesis, and he talks about God making man and woman and putting them together, and and he reveals God's plan again for marriage. Jesus says that marriage is God's creation and his plan, and he is intimately involved in a marriage. It's God's will and God's plan for marriage to be permanent and to show his love and his faithfulness through that. Does God's faithfulness change on a whim when he has an emotional day? No, it doesn't. And he wants part part of our marriage to show that faithfulness, to stick together, in that covenant. And then he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Don't take actions that will damage and destroy God-ordained covenants. Don't do that. All right, what's a covenant? Covenant's a special kind of relationship, kind of takes it up a level. It's not a casual thing. Between people, say, in a business transaction, um, it brought some formality to a verbal agreement. There was extra measures in place to help ensure that both sides kept their end of the deal. There was benefits and often consequences for your positive and negative behavior related to that business relationship. Um, it would be, if you go back and read Genesis where, uh, where God makes a covenant with Abraham and you see Abraham <laughs> just cut all these animals in half and find a little valley and, and lay the animals just cut in half. And they're big animals too. We're not talking like toads and chickens. These are, these are big animals, cows and bulls and rams. And he puts them like this and all the blood from those things is running into that little valley. And, and what you did was you would walk, both parties of a covenant, especially in, in, uh, in this time, would walk in the blood through that and the, and the saying was, and the thought was, so be it to me if I break my covenant with you. This was serious. This was not like a handshake and, and, and this is what I, you know, this is my word. My word is my bond. No, you're gonna walk the blood. <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna walk down this middle. And, um, and what happened with Abraham was God knocked him out before he could walk, walk down and God himself walked through there and, and basically saying, so be it to me, if the covenant is broken by you or by me. And then he ended up through Jesus taking it just like that. Brutally messy blood. He took, the, he took that punishment of that broken covenant. 
Covenants could also be between greater and lesser nations. This was a little bit different. This was uh, subjugation and tribute (laughs) to avoid destruction. You would say, all right, we have a covenant. I agree to pay you this much tribute. Please don't kill me. That was, that was pretty much it. There were, the only benefit of being in that covenant was you were still alive. And, um, and so that, that was kind of what would happen there. And then there's between God and Israel. This kind of covenant, um, we, we talked about the one with Abraham, but God would present the terms of the covenant to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to Israel at Sinai, Joshua, again, later, once they're in the promised land, and David, and they had the option to say, yes, we'll be in this covenant. There was, there was blessings for, for uh, following the terms of the covenant, and there was curses for not following the terms of the covenant. And each time, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel, they chose to engage in that covenant. They chose to be, yes, we'll be your covenant people. It was a serious thing. It was a serious thing. Covenant is the relationship that God uses to relate to to humans, to people. Why, Why does it take that? Because it sets boundaries and it sets expectations. It creates the framework from which we can begin to know and understand him and who he is. Through his covenants, we see the things that mean the most to him. Because he wouldn't just create rules if they didn't mean anything to him. You know, you shall, not, um, uh, you shall not murder. Life is precious. He values life. So, so you don't cross that line. You don't murder, right? So he, he reveals the things that mean the most to him, the things that he places value on, and the things that he despises and hates. Which brings us to our next section of scripture in Malachi, chapter 2, 13. Malachi is a, is a prophet, and he's rebuking the people of Judah for, um, specifically in this case, for that the men of Judah had been divorcing their, their Jewish wives so that they could marry foreign wives. Um, it describes them as, as daughters of, of foreign gods. And Malachi says this, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and groaning because he, is no, because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, for what reason? Right, because we can play dumb with God sometimes. Um, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Verse 15, the second part says, take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit and do not deal treacherously. Why does God hate divorce? I mean, couldn't he just be like, eh, you know, you guys will figure it out. You'll be fine. But he doubles down on this here. God hates divorce because it's contrary to his original plan. God's original plan and all of creation was good. And he looked at it and he said, it is good. It's very good. 
So anything other than his original design and his goodness is not good, right? Any deviation from God's original intention is less than not good and not good for you, not good for the way he designed us, not good for the the order of creation that he has made that he understands. It's contrary to his original plan. God also hates divorce because it damages us, his creation. And it distorts the message that, that he wants to portray through us, his faithfulness. He keeps his promises. Divorce is also the result of sinful people doing life their way instead of following him. So he hates it for that reason. And when, is, when it is sought for selfish and evil reasons, divorce is hateful to him. And he does not hold innocent the people who do that. Verse 11 in Mark 10 says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. This is Jesus speaking privately with his disciples and clearly referring to the Herod situation. Both Herod, I I said it earlier, both Herod and his wife Herodias had at will divorced their spouses, breaking those covenants and and just dismissing them uh, for invalid reasons. And so that would be what, what Malachi says is dealing treacherously and that in order to marry each other. I mean, we can all think of stories where, where this kind of thing has happened uh, with people that we know. I, I know people who have, who have made this decision. Life was hard. It was rough. They weren't getting along. And over time, they just, their affections grew towards somebody else. I saw two families explode so that, so that one from each could marry each other in the same church. Yeah. And, it, you know, people that, that knew and were close were just, you know, shocked and like, I can't, I can't believe that's happening. That is dealing treacherously. That is dealing treacherously. And God does not hold innocent that. Like, you, you, are, gonna, you are gonna give an account for that. There's grace. We'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> you know we're gonna be talking about grace at the end of this, right? <laughs> Hey, that's what the word, the word does, right? The word points something out, brings conviction, and then, and then it heals and brings, um, brings reconciliation and restoration. So Jesus was speaking directly to that situation of Herod and Herodias and the specifics around it. In other words, they wanted what they wanted and did not care what God said or what he wanted. And that really is the condition of the heart that we're dealing with. Wanting what I want rather than wanting what God wants. Doing things in this way is sin. It is selfish. It was selfish and evil choice with no valid reason for ending the previous marriages. And in God's eyes, that's adultery. So Jesus wanted to bring the conversation back to um, having a heart that pursues God and, was, and living a life in that direction. So what does this mean for us today? We talked a lot about the history and the schools of thought and all that, but what does it mean for us today? Okay, 
brass tacks. Here we go. The question is, does Jesus unequivocally ban divorce in this passage? The short answer is no, he does not. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to paraphrase a couple of the verses there. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, whoever calls his brother a fool is guilty of murder in his heart. A few verses later, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at someone lustfully, you have already committed the sin in your heart. Was Jesus literally redefining murder or literally redefining adultery? Or is he making the point that sinful actions originate from a sinful heart? Those things that show up on the outside start somewhere. And it starts in the heart. It starts with our attitudes. It starts with our choices and what we think about. And whether or not we are submitted to our creator. Are we doing what God wants and what he said is right because he's God and he gets to decide that? Or am I doing what I feel is right? One could say, I have never murdered anyone, but they have hate and malice in their heart. God sees the heart and is concerned with the contents therein. In the case of divorce, once again, Jesus takes the issue presented to him and nails the real issue behind it, which is the issue that God sees. Jesus didn't care about the specifics of what was meant by some indecency. That's irrelevant. We're not going to get into that. He was concerned that people did not share God's values or priorities. God hates divorce. God hates separation. God hates suffering and pain that divorce causes. God hates broken promises. But God understands his creation. He knows that we are but dust. And he knows our, our human condition. He know, and, and then through Moses, he gives the people a safer way to legally process that sad, sad ending of a covenant. We have many different situations, even in this room. Is Jesus saying that divorce is never an option because God hates divorce and therefore if you've done it, you're... You're hosed? No, that's not what he's saying. That's not at all what he's saying. There are places when a covenant is so broken that it cannot be redeemed in human, in human terms. There can be a place where so much damage has been done that it, it is irreparable. And Jesus is not looking at that situation and saying, no divorce, you're stuck there. There's places, there's situations where, where it's dangerous, where abuse has happened, where, where addiction rules the day, and it's not a safe place anymore. Every situation is different. So I can't stand up here and make blanket statements about where the breaking point is for all marriages or whether or not that threshold has been crossed. That's not my call. 
And even thinking that I could is just where the Pharisees were at. Like, hey, let's, let's draw a line. Let's figure out you know, the specifics on this. Also at work in all of this is the miracle working power of God. Because we are disciples, because we are believers, we put ourselves in alignment with him. And as we make the space in various places of our life, anything is possible. Any restoration is possible. I can tell you stories about restoration that, that still just give me chills to think about. One, 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 no, I'm not going to tell that. I'm not going to tell stories. That's their story. I'm not going to tell. So that is also a factor. And it affects in each situation differently what, what the right thing to do is. So we walk it out in the spirit and we follow the Lord. So you may not go out from here and say, Pastor Jonathan said I could get a divorce. Not what's going to happen. Not what's going to happen. On the other hand, the Bible does not teach that you may not divorce. It teaches that God hates it. And it is contrary to his nature. So think about God as you're, as you're making these decisions. Our big picture goal is to be like Jesus, right? That's why we're disciples. And to be holy like our God is holy. You see, the, the cost of the kingdom is great. And even in the area of our closest human relationships, you don't get to decide what's right and wrong. He does. You don't get to decide what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. He does. That's what you signed up for when you got into the kingdom. When you said, I'll be your disciple, Jesus. I'll agree to this covenant. He's God and you're not. He gets to decide. Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of the human heart. The failure to understand God's purposes in marriage. But Jesus shuts the door on letting our human brokenness set the standard. Our, our brokenness does not set the standard. He does. And that's what we're always aiming for. All right, I'm gonna bring this right around here. And uh, Seth, can you come on up and play? Let's start heading up the hill here. <laughs> 1 Peter 1, 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours, in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. For in, uh, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the relationship we, we pursue with the Lord, to be like him. Holy as in set apart and completely different from the other ordinary things. It means pure and undefiled. It means on another level. That's what holy means. God says, I'm holy and I want you to be holy. And of course, Romans 8, 28, 29 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew that's you and I he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that's our destiny to look like him to be holy like he is holy so that he would be Jesus would be the first fruit among many brethren 
In other words, we as disciples and followers of Jesus are not to base our lives on the same things that the world around us bases its life on. Selfish motives and fleshy thinking aren't going to cut it. We have a higher aim. Our goal is to be like Jesus. So that the world will know him. To bring him honor and to bring people to him. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. And this also governs how we think about things like marriage and divorce, finances, possessions, friendships, hobbies, everything. Our life's purpose is to be like him. And it's a process, and it feels so slow sometimes. You just feel like, I'm not getting this. I feel the same as I did yesterday. I made that same mistake again. We feel weak and broken with sin, and we are. But that process that we've entered into to become like Jesus is called sanctification, and it comes with the most beautiful gift that you can imagine, and that gift is grace. Grace is not, you can do anything and it's fine. Grace is not, oh, it doesn't matter, God loves you anyway. That is not what grace is. And anybody who tells you different is selling you a bill of goods. That's not what scripture says. Grace is for you, the disciple, as you engage in becoming like Jesus. You need to be moving in that direction. You need to be making room in your heart. You need to be following him like, like the 12 were and like the 120 were around that. Going with him, following him, being like him. I want to be like this guy. And as we go in that direction, we have this gift of grace that covers our life, that covers our mistakes, that, that washes our sins. Boy, that is good news, especially on a topic like this. I just want to say for the record, I didn't just go, oh, I want to talk about divorce today. No, this is what, I let the Bible bring up the passages that we're going to talk about, and that's what it was. So, but we have this grace to cover us. God knows what we're made of and he knows where we're coming from and he knows the, the weakness that we have. I want to take just this moment to, to speak to the shame that comes with this topic. Half of us have just been squirming this whole time and I get it. I totally get it. God hates divorce, but his grace is endless for those who turn their hearts to him. Maybe you were in a dangerous situation of addiction or abuse. Or there was unfaithfulness and divorce was absolutely justified. God's grace is for you as you give him that part of your heart. If you are divorced and maybe you actually did do it out of selfish and evil motives, God's grace is for you as you turn towards him. You need to know that you can go on and become the disciple of Jesus that you were created to be. God is still for you and will use even the tragedy and trauma of divorce to make you look like Jesus. That's what we just read in Romans. All things, all things, as you're on that trajectory, as you are giving your life to Jesus on a daily basis, all things can be used to make you look more like him. Even divorce. Even divorce. Can you believe that, that God can do that? That he's that good? I tell you, I've, there's situations. There's bad things. And, and you, 
And we all, we've all got them in our life right now too. Like you're just like, if that thing got redeemed, if God got a hold of that situation, that would just be a miracle. That's what God is about. That miracle is what God is about. He wants to use those things and the difficult things and the painful things and the tragic things to, he wants to remove the pain and the sting from those and help you become like Jesus. And he will do it. He will do it. So I take us back to last week where, where the main line was, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. As you are dealing with, with the with ramifications of divorce, whatever, however you were associated with it. We come to a place where Jesus is asking us to believe that he can use all things, and, and we're going to have to say, at some level, I, I believe, but you, Lord, you're going to have to work this in me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, you are good. Let's pray together. Lord, this has been a heavy topic today. It's heavy because of all the experiences we have. It's heavy because we carry a burden of shame associated with this ugly thing called divorce. Today, Lord, we want to confess those places where we have made foolish selfish or even vindictive choices in our marriages. Some of them leading to divorce. We have allowed our sinful nature to lead us instead of your heart. But Jesus, we hear your word today. We are your disciples and we want to love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate and see our marriages the way that you see them as an illustration of your faithfulness and your unity. You give us grace to cover our failings as we are becoming more like you. Lord, keep us moving toward that end. Fulfill your promise in us that you will continue to make us look more like you and using everything in our life to do so. Lord, would you minister your grace to us today? Just take a moment, even before we say amen, and, and just allow the grace of the Lord to, to cover you. Do you need to make space in your heart and, and turn from your own way to his way right now? There's grace to, to cover that. Turn your heart right now away from your own motives, away from your own definitions of right and wrong and allow him to be God. Let his grace cover you and strengthen you and cleanse you. Lord, you are good. You are faithful. You are merciful and kind and you work all things for our good. We love to be your disciples. We love to look more like you. And we want to love the things that you love. So work this in our hearts. And we say with the man from chapter 9, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to create more space for you to work and to minister in my heart.
show me that anything is possible with you. We love you, Jesus. We love you. Lord, I just ask for encouragement for my brothers and sisters here. And clear direction for next steps, for reconciliations, for, for where you would lead us. Bring healing in all areas as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As you go out from here today, may the Holy Spirit lead you in righteous decisions and in holy living. May you always be aware that you are his and not living for yourself. Be full of his grace and power to go about our mission to see the lost saved and disciples made beginning with us. In Jesus' name, amen.